Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. This is a STS special, Surviving My Biggest Case. Here's your host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Joel Waldman. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor. And today, it is an STS special, Surviving My Biggest Case case where we turn to law enforcement officers, attorneys, uh, journalists, and we ask them about the case that has impacted their careers the most. Uh, Today, none other than the inimitable Detective Phil Waters. He is, as I always say, America's most respected detective. He spent decades in the law enforcement world, becoming an expert at obtaining criminal confessions Spent 23 years of those uh, in the PD as a homicide detective uh, for the Houston Police Department, investigating more than 400 homicide cases, including one that took the life of his good friend and fellow police officer. Uh, Detective Waters is also a Marine, the owner of Kindred Spirits Investigations and the star of the show, The Interrogator. Uh, Phil, I'm excited to have you. Always excited to have you. Especially excited to have you for this show, uh, Surviving My Biggest Case. Uh, As the audience knows, or maybe they don't, we don't talk about this at all prior. I have no idea what you're about to tell me. This is like sitting in a Starbucks, which I don't think you would ever do. No. Uh, You would never do that. I knew knew that. But uh, regardless, it's like sitting in a coffee shop and uh, just talking. So uh, you've got some of the most experience of anyone that we've had on the show. Uh, I assume this is going to be a homicide case. What do you have? Correct. Well, it was, uh, as it it was picking one was the big issue here. When you asked me to, to talk about the case, I guess that affected me the most or was kind of uh, up there in the, in the top of, of the cases I'd investigated and, this one came to mind it was pretty immediate uh, because of the different uh, people involved in this case and just the the investigation that was conducted and then the way it uh the ultimate outcome and the evidence that we obtained that brought this case to a conclusion and a successful prosecution Um, You know, before we even dig into that, I know you're a Marine. You serve the country uh, bravely. Uh, What made you, after the Marines, decide that you were going to become a police officer? Well, I had always wanted to be a lawyer, Hmm. which now kind of boggles my mind. But but I had always wanted to be a lawyer. I would watch Perry Mason when I was a kid growing up. And if you'd asked me at the age of 10 what I wanted to be when I grew up, it was a lawyer. You would have been a good lawyer. What's that? You would have been a very good lawyer, too. Well, I appreciate that. I I moved, you know, went to college and so forth and so on. In fact, I actually signed up in the Marines for a program called uh, PLC Law, Platoon Leaders Class. Went to school at Oklahoma State, took the LSAT test, did all those things, applied to several different law schools, but by the end of four years I was done with school and I had not really dedicated myself to my studies as I should have. So my grade point average 
did not uh, <laughs> suffice to uh, to bring the LSAT score to a level that I would be considered for acceptance into law school. So uh, that was kind of the way I ended up taking my commission in the Marines and as a as a ground officer in the PLC ground program, and then went off into the went to the basic school, went to the fleet, and had my career there in the Marine Corps. Uh, then I ended up coming around my last uh, few months in the Marines. I went to Second Marine Division and worked for General Gray, who at that time was the Second Marine Division Commanding General. Al Gray, who later became Commandant of the Marine Corps. And he was just a, the finest, uh, he was a Marine's Marine. I mean, just one of the finest people that uh, I've ever worked for. And had I worked for him at the beginning of my career, I would have been more likely to have stayed. But at that point in time, I was wanting to pursue other interests. The Marines was not, were not allowing me that opportunity so I ended up getting out of the Marine Corps and was, I, I had, I had one, I had kind of shifted my focus because when I was, when I was working for the, for General Gray, I was what was called a recorder. So I would go in and present, I'd be the prosecutor for cases that were presented by battalion commanders for Marines that were not discharged through the court-martial process, but were going to be administratively discharged because they were having some problems and they would receive an under other than honorable conditions discharge, a UOTHC, which had the same effect as a bad conduct or a dishonorable. So it was a, it's a big, it was a big deal. And I would present, I would get presented all the factors behind these different cases. And they had the right to appear before a discharge board that was made up of Marine Corps officers. So I presented those cases. I uh, presented uh, over 30 of those cases. There were uh, 29 of those people, 30 of those people that were removed from the Marine Corps. And there was one that was retained and he was retained because I recommended retention for him. So it was, um, and because of those efforts, general gray, um, nominated me and, and eventually awarded me the Navy achievement medal. So it was a, it was a really profound, uh, point in my life and kind now, of got where, me. Directed. What's that? Where, where's, yeah. The medal, where is that medal today? It's hanging in my uh, my office in my I Love Me room at, in Texas. In the <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. So what year and, do you what what year do you enter the police department in Houston? Well, so I the lawyer thing changed while I was doing this in the Marines because the the Marines that were going to these boards they were able to obtain a jack a judge advocate general to represent them at these boards. And by the time I got through with my interaction with these lawyers, I had determined then that I think I'm going to be more focused on law enforcement than I am on 
on lawyering. And that's what I did. So I got out of the Marines in 1982, went on ready reserve status, and got out of that out of active duty, off of active duty. And immediately I had applied before I had left active duty, I had applied at Secret Service, I had applied at the FBI, I had applied at NIS, Naval Investigative Service. And, and it's also police department where I was from. So I was going through all these processes and so forth and so on. And some things occurred. I ended up, uh, and my wife had, was trying to find a job in uh, Tulsa as a teacher, speech therapist, and these things just weren't happening. So the Lord led us to the place that I swear I would never live and work, Houston, Texas, which is where my why wife. Why, did, why didn't you want? Yeah. Why didn't you want to live there? High humidity or no what? Trust, trust me, I had no desire to go to Houston, Texas. So, <laughs> no. But my wife's family was there, so we ended up there. And but it's a much, it's a much bigger police department than Tulsa, I assume. Well, it was, but Tulsa was my hometown, and yeah. You know, I, I, that's, that's where I kind of wanted to go back to. So it just yeah. didn't work out. And we ended up in, 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 um, in Houston because that's where, uh, Sandra's family was. And so we got down there and I ended up uh, applying with the Houston police department. Now we're living with my in-laws, which you can imagine is, kind of a challenge, but we're there and, and I don't have a job. My wife has gotten a job with uh, a school district. So we got that going on. I apply at the Houston police department and we're rocking and rolling and we get to Houston, I guess, in about January of 83. And so I immediately put in for the Houston police department. And I'm starting to get word back from these other agencies and I'm not getting hired. So this was a conundrum. Well, it came to the point where I applied with the Houston police department. And in that time there was a conflict about whether Houston was going to have a, an academy at all, or whether they're going to have one every week, uh, every six weeks. So it was, it was really messed up, but I went ahead and applied and this, this, trailed along, trailed along, trailed along. And now we're in about May and I've got to have a job. I mean, I got to have a J-O-B. We're, we're building a house. We're still living with our in-laws. I mean, it was kind of crazy time. I, I've got to do something. Pressure, the pressure's on. And it is. And I'm working for uh, a construction company hauling drywall up and down a building. And, I, and I'm, like, this is what I'm not going to do. You know, that <laughs> determined that. So anyway, um, I go to work for U.S. Home as a construction superintendent, superintendent trainee because the salesman on our home said, you know what, you ought to go apply. And I said, I don't know how to put a house together. You know, that guy said, well, they want your, they want your leadership skills that you obtained in the Marines. And so I said, well, okay. So I went down and applied and they put me through a bigger process and I took 12 psychological tests. I mean, it was a bigger process than getting on the police department. It's kind of amazing. 
<laughs> and at the time, they were the biggest residential home builder in the country. So uh, they were in 21 different states, but they were doing 40% of their building in Houston, Texas. So it, wow. it, was, it was crazy time. And wow. um, so we, I went down and applied and I came back as I'm driving back to the house. We were living in the woodlands, which is north of Houston. And by the time I got from the interview back to the house, I walk in and, and my wife says, you need to call this lady from U.S. Home. And I'm thinking, wow, they're telling me, thank you very much. Uh, we're moving on. Well, I call a woman up and, and she says, we're, we're happy to offer you a job as a construction superintendent training at U.S. Home. Mm. And at the time, I was, the starting pay was 26 five which huh. was pretty good money in 1983. Yeah. Wow. And so I said, yeah, sign me up. I go to that's work for you. No, that's what news stations still pay their employees, news stations. So I wouldn't, that wasn't that bad. Wasn't that. <laughs> so we go to, uh, I go to work for us home and three weeks. It's a true story. Three weeks after I go to work for us home, I get a call from the recruiter at the Houston police department. And he tells me that there is going to be an academy and that I have a spot in it and that all they're waiting for is the date for me to report. Very nice. So I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> so I, I, I tell them, I, I said, look, I really, really appreciate this. I said, but I've just gone to work for U.S. Home and I'm making $8,000 more a year than a starting rookie at HPD. Mm. So, and he understood. He said, look, he says, if you change your mind, he said, come back, reapply. We will just pick up where we left off. <laughs> and I said, that would be wonderful. So I go to work for U.S. Home. So a year later, I've still got this bug. I've still got this itch to be a cop. And a friend of mine who is a deputy constable at a, at a large constable's office in Houston, who used to come by and check the website. And at the time I was dipping Copenhagen, we would share our Copenhagen and all that kind of stuff and, and good, <laughs> good stuff, good times. And, and I was telling him about this. He says, you, what you need to do is you need to be, you need to sign on with the Harris County Sheriff's Office in their reserve program. It's like a whole separate police department. And it's a very extensive, big reserve program. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, okay, I'll give that a shot. So I went through a reserve academy. Then I applied to Harris County Sheriff's Office and was hired, was accepted into their reserves at the Harris County Sheriff's Office. Now, in doing that, I had to start just like any deputy would. I had to work in the jail to start out with. And then at some point in time, I was transferred to patrol. So now I'm patrolling and, I, and I'm going out uh, three or four. And, and of course, the Harris County Sheriff's Office takes care of the unincorporated areas of. But you're Harris doing County. this while you're still at U.S. home? Correct. Okay. So I, I can go out two or three nights a week and ride patrol mm -hmm. and uh, live that life and then go back to my real work the next day. 
and it yeah. was awesome. So I was kind of having the best of both worlds. So rock along, rock along, rock along. The oil industry blows up and the housing market goes with it. I managed to survive all the purges. And I'm now at this point, I'm a construction manager and I've had three pay raises. I'm making 35 to 40 grand a year. I mean, it's, it's all good. I'm going mm. to training though with the sheriff's office and I go to a training, a street survival training uh, segment in uh, Montgomery County, Texas at the sheriff's office there. And I meet a captain up there who is a Marine. And so he and I hit it off and there's another uh, Lieutenant up there who is uh, uh, a, a uh, army. Uh, and he is Vietnam vet. Uh, the Marine was a Vietnam vet. And then I meet another Sergeant up there who uh, was big into the training. He was kind of what they were calling the ninjas. This was kind of an old, you know, old school sheriff's office, good old boys and all that. And these were the new wave. These were the new, the new ninjas, you know, and so the new centurions. So anyway, I got with those guys and, and we were, we just hit it off. And so we rock along and I get, I'm told that if I'm going to remain with us home, which I'm in their managerial program. So my next step is executive vice president. So I am told that if I'm going to remain at us home, I am going to have to be transferred either to garden city, New Jersey or Bakersfield, California. And I said, that will never happen. <laughs> Not my so home state. I, in about, about the same time, I get a phone call from the sergeant at the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office with North of Houston. And he tells me that they have just been approved for a sheriff's academy. And they're going to conduct their first academy class for a, a full peace, full-time peace officer license. Would I like to attend? It's at night. Um, they've got one slot open and it's mine if I want it. So I go to my supervisors at the sheriff's office, ask them about it. They end up sponsoring me to this, this academy. So months later, I graduate. I end up getting my full-time um, certification, my license. And so I... Uh, <laughs> And then about the same time, I'm offered a job at the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office. Hmm. So I've got a decision to make. So for a month, and they're going to put me in the jail. They're going to work. I'm working in the jail. And they have two days on, three days off, three days on, two days off. That's the shift. And it's from, it's 12-hour shifts from 7P to 7A. Hmm. And I said, well, okay. So I take the job while I'm still working at U.S. Home. And for a month, I work the Montgomery <laughs> County Sheriff's Office at night. And then during the day, I go to U.S. Home and do my job there. Wait, how much sleep were you getting, if any? Not much. And our son had just been born mm. in June of 85. So... Wow. I'm taking care of him when I'm home. My wife said, well, it was crazy. It was crazy time in the, in the wow. water side. Wow. After about a month of that, I determined that I wanted to be a cop 
much more than I wanted to be an executive vice president at U.S. Home. So I took the job. And I went to my wife and I said, this is what I want to do. And she and I asked her, you know, we were talking about it. And she only asked me one question. And the question was, can we pay the bills? And of course, I lied and said, yes, we can. Because I was going from 35000 to 40000 a year to $1,400 a month as a deputy sheriff. Wow. So, uh, but we did make it. We, we did make it. And then from then on, I stayed at the sheriff's office for eight years. I worked in the jail. I worked patrol. I was on the SWAT team. I worked mm-hmm. narcotics and then left the sheriff's office in 93 and went to work for the Houston Police Department at that time and was at the, went to the Houston Police Department. By that time, I'd been a cop for about 10 years, and mm-hmm. I went to work, uh, and went through a lateral entry program uh, with the Houston Police Department. That academy lasted nine weeks, and then I was shipped out to a substation where I rode patrol. But wow. between the time that I, I had friends of mine that I'd worked with in narcotics, that were in homicide, they were in narcotics, they were trying to recruit me to narcotics. A couple of friends of mine were trying to recruit me to homicide and an opportunity popped up. One of those friends said, you need to put in for this. At the time I said, there's no way. I mean, I haven't been here that long, blah, blah, blah. He said, you need to put in for this. I said, okay. So I did. So between the time that I showed up at the Houston Police Department and went to homicide was about 17 months. Wow, which is super rare. It was. And then I spent the next 23 years in the homicide division. This friend of mine told me that if this gets in your blood, you'll never want to do anything else. And it that proved to be a true statement. And I was not, I didn't want to promote. I wanted to retire as a homicide detective of the Houston Police Department and uh, the Lord willing, that was what uh, ended up happening. So 33-year wow. career and the last 23 with the Houston Police Department as a homicide detective. And by the way, you sent me, which I haven't really even looked at, your uh, undercover photos from narcotics. With which your, <laughs> with your permission, I'm going to put on Insta at some point. Uh, but let's get to this big case. So you're working homicide. You get in there quickly. You're obviously one of the best at what you do. What is the case that stands out? I mean, there, I'm sure there's more than one, but the one that we're going to talk about today. Well, this case is the immaculate car dealership homicide, several homicide. <laughs> and this, this was a case that stood out in my mind above the other cases because of the different people involved in it the circumstances of the case itself and then the ultimate ending, which was a successful prosecution. So it, it was, um, it touched all the, checked all the boxes. I mean, from just doing the job from being uh, dogged about getting and finding the right person who's done this wrong thing. It was about uh, the relationships that I established with the families and 
it was just a, it just encompassed, I mean, everything, uh, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. It was, it was a case that just had all the qualities of everything that I tried to do and tried to accomplish as a, as a homicide detective and trying to bring about some sense of peace to victims' families and then seeing that there's a measure of justice. So what's the what's the year? What's the call that you get? Uh, what is the call that you get? And take us through the first night of this uh, case. This is January the 8th of 2015. And this, the event occurs in the middle of the day. It's, it's that which was unusual in and of itself, given the gravity of, of the scene. So we get called to a shooting scene at a street, Little York, in Houston, Texas, in North Houston. And it's at a car dealership, Immaculate Car Dealers. And it is a, um, it's a used car dealership, but it is a quite, it's quite large. It's not just your kind of on the corner car dealership. It's a, it's a full, full shop. They've got a mechanic shop in the back and so forth and so on. So it's, it's a full blown car dealership and put together by the uh, Contreras brothers, Tony Contreras and Jesse Contreras. And they've um, put this business together to give the opportunity to folks that could not under normal circumstances be able to afford a vehicle to get back and forth from work and so forth and so on. So these guys were doing, I think what we could kind of define as a community service for the, the community that they were born into and raised in. And that was, that was, that was what they were doing. And they were very successful at it. And so they had, uh, they were in, in the office and the office set up and, and they had Tony's son, Casey, who was also working in the office as well. So they had a freestanding structure that had the offices and the conference rooms and bathrooms, so forth and so on. And when you walked into Immaculate and make a right hand turn, that is the office. So there's a, a door there, a glass door. You walk through that, and then there's an office. You've got Casey sitting on one end by that door, and you've got Jesse sitting in the middle, and you have Tony sitting at the other end. So we we get this. That kind of sets the stage of where they are. But we get this scene that there's been a shooting, and when we get there, of course, the place is covered up with, with police. We've got the place secured. It's, it's taped off. And we've already got media people there are showing up, and which gives us an indicator. We've just been given some very scant details. And at that point in time, we, we are told that we've got two bodies in the office, and we have one that has been uh, one person that's been transported to the hospital. So that's the setting for which we're going to. Phil, when, when you get, get these call, when you get these calls, um, 
does the adrenaline kick in like immediately? What what is the feeling when you get one of these? I mean, first of all, how do these calls come through? Because you're not patrolling around in the car. Uh, are you, do, what do you have? Someone literally comes to you in the homicide office and says, "You guys got to head out." How does it work? That's correct. We were we were first up is what we refer to it. We have a rotation. There's a board in the homicide division by the intake desk. And it has all the squads up there and who the designated teams are for that particular for rotation. So we rotate those scenes. So we were first up for it for the next scene. The detective working the homicide intake desk, they received the call from the patrol officer who has gone to the scene, who's the primary at the scene and says, we got a homicide, you need to send a pair. So we, that's, that's how we get it. We're we are sitting at our desks and this detective rounds the corner and says, we've got a, a shooting, triple shooting at Immaculate Car Wash on Little York. And here it is. And we're given just some very scant details about what we're going to. Well, at that point in time, course everything kicks in i mean this is we're now headed to where we were what we were designed and trained to do and yes i mean there is that that rush of anticipation what are we going to see we're already putting in our heads that we're going to walk into this thing objectively open-minded we want to let the scene talk to us and we work in pairs and we work a scene side and a witness side. So whoever's going to handle the witness side, obviously is going to talk to the witnesses. If there are any, he's going to, he's going to take care of the people part of this scene. Then we have the scene side, which is the physical scene, the gathering of the evidence, the forensic testing, that kind of thing. And would you, would you guys all, would you always be one thing or would you guys switch back and forth, you and your partner? Like one, my one partner time and be I, a we always, we were interviewers, you know, that was our thing. We put together the curriculum for interviewing for the Houston police department. Uh, we had taught all around the country. And so we were, we both wanted to be in that interview room. So we decided between the two of us, rather than have wrestling matches, we just decided to alternate. So in this particular scene, I had the scene side and my partner had the witness side. So we go and there, there are separate, there are separate functions for each part of that, of that scene. And we have a card, we have a homicide card that details what the witness side is to do and what the scene side is to do. So we're not, we're not just going there, just fly by night, you know, seat of the pants kind of thing. So we're, we're very calculated on what we're going to do once we get to the scene, we know what our jobs are. So we, we so get to the scene. Here you walk here, you walk into this office, I presume. And, uh, it's a middle of the afternoon. What do you see? Well, we walk in and the first thing we see, of course, first thing I see is I go in and I see blood on the, in the foyer. That's going to be the blood of the, 
of the victim that had been transported to the hospital because the paramedics had pulled him out into the floor working on him and so forth. So that's the first thing I see. Then I make that immediate right and through the door into the office area. And there is the desk that is unoccupied. But I see that there is blood spatter on the back wall uh, going down in kind of an arc. So I see the, the blood there, which is an indicator that this is going to be someone who's shot in the head. And the, uh, there's, there's the, the chairs pushed back and so forth and so on. So that's the one that's been transported to the hospital. Then I notice that there is a shell casing. And now as I start to look, and then the offices, it's, uh, it's probably, I'd say, 20 feet long. It's kind of shaped in a rectangle. So I'm looking from one end to the other end. It's not, it's not a big office, but, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the other end. And in the middle, there is a, a desk that faces toward the doors. And there's a second door in the middle that you can, another glass door that you can walk into the office in. That desk is facing that door. And behind that desk is the second victim. The first one was Casey Contreras, was the 22-year-old son of Tony. The second victim in the behind that desk is the is Jesse. Then the third victim is the, at a desk that is facing toward Casey's desk, and that's Tony. And, and I'm seeing shell casings as I'm walking from Casey's desk to Tony's. And so what I'm ticking off in my head is that the person who did this was moving and shooting. That they came into the and came into the into the office, immediately started shooting. And my estimation then at the time was that the likelihood was that these three people were shot in less than two seconds. And so it's so interesting, like to because you really are letting the room speak to you. You're not the room is telling you the scene is telling you this. Is this right? Correct. Very interesting. I'm not, not predisposed to a conclusion. I've got the. I've got to let, I have to let the scene talk to me and let me know, lead me where I need to be. Now, the great Phil Waters once said, it's money, sex, or drugs. And I have a feeling this is uh, either money or drugs or both. But continue on, Phil. Well, it ended up being money. But as I continue to tell this story, there was the possibility that there were drugs. And the other, the other thing about that scene that was so, was so prominent was, is that the smell of gasoline. So what does that tell me? That tells me that this person, whoever did it, person or persons, whoever did it, wanted to burn the place down. But for whatever Why reason, they? 
Well, I'll get to that, but but <laughs> they 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 were not successful. But I can let see. Me stop, yeah, let ahead. me stop you for one quick second. So you talk about it very matter of factly. Now, if Joel Waldman walked into a scene and I see three people basically blown away, um, that would impact me greatly. How when you see someone who was alive thirty minutes earlier. Um, and is now bullet, you know, riddled with bullets. I mean, what do those images do to you? Do you just have to completely compartmentalize? I mean, what's it like for you to see these bodies so often in, in these types of conditions? Well, you know, I, I've told you, told you before, I mean, look, I, I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be, where the Lord put me, I'm grounded in my faith and he's, Bless me with the ability to be able to absorb this kind of stuff for the purpose of seeking justice and giving a me measure of peace to the victim's family. So I, I know what the end game is. I know what the goal is. So I immediately have to snap up and step up into looking at the scene and reading it to determine the direction I need to go to find the right person who's done the wrong thing. So to use the word that you use, and I've used it before, was to compartmentalize. That's exactly what I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I need to see this thing through the eyes of a homicide detective with an objectivity that's going to lead me to the truth. So and I, and I now it's that. interesting because you, you've you've made some very interesting observations. These people were shot in under two seconds. The per, the shooter was moving. Um, there was a smell of gasoline, and these are all interesting details. But at the time, it still must be a massive mystery as to who this is, where are they? Uh, I assume the next thing you have to do is pull videotape, right? But take take us through it from there. Well, so here's what happens with that. We're, I walk in, and of course, one of the other things I notice is that there are cameras everywhere. Cameras in the foyer, camera, there's a couple, couple cameras in the foyer, two or three cameras in the foyer. There's uh, uh, cameras in the room, in the office. There are cameras everywhere. And I'm thinking, I see the DVR sitting there, and I'm thinking, oh, man, we've got this thing. So once I have done my initial evaluation of the scene. And I, I mean, there's actually gasoline in the cracks in the tile that, that is still there. So this scene is so fresh. Uh, it, it was pretty amazing. And, and there's a, uh, I think we find a burnt, like a burnt piece of paper. Like, like that was going to be what was used to ignite the gasoline and it didn't work for whatever reasons and so forth and so on. So, and the only thing I, when I saw that, I thought to myself, and I saw this gasoline, I thought, well, whoever this person was, if that was their intent, they've been watching too much television because you're not going to light gasoline by lighting a piece of paper and putting it on the fluid on the ground. So, uh, you know, it's the vapors that ignite it. So anyway, it didn't happen for them. So I go over to the DVR and... They've got a monitor, so we want to see what's on the DVR, that this has got to be there. And it doesn't work. The DVR does not work. Of course. Like, You've got to be kidding me. And 
And when I say it didn't work, I mean, it just would not put an image up on the screen. And if it did light up, it was like, you know, one of these blue screens with nothing there. And I was like, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. So we have our, we've got great resources at HPD. We have our forensic video people. We take the, we take the DVR, we give it to them and say, go see what you can find. But we don't get that information for almost two days. So we're at the scene now. And we do have, you know, thankfully, we do have a witness. We have an eyewitness. But he doesn't show up until after the, the homicides have occurred. And he is an employee there. He's a mechanic. He's kind of their guy Friday. He does a lot of different things around uh, the dealership. And he had gone to get a part for some car. And his name is Mauricio. They called him Flacco. And he had come back and walked into the side door, which there was a window at the end of the office, at each end of the office. This one where Casey was sitting was to the outside area. This one where Tony was sitting was to a little hallway in the bathroom, but there was a window there that you could look through. Well, Flacco comes in that door and he just kind of glances into the window. And of course, he does this double take and he's just stunned. I mean, he's standing there looking at the, looking at the, uh, at what he's looking at, which is Tony closest to him. Casey's on the other end and Jesse's behind the desk, but he doesn't see Jesse. So he's just in, you know, so he comes back, he comes around to that middle door. Now he sees Jesse. He's on the phone calling 911. I mean, it, it, it takes, you know, people talk about, you know, why do witnesses freeze? Why do they do the things they do? Look, I'm telling you, when you're looking at something like that, three of your closest friends and your employers in that state, it takes a moment for, for you to process that. And, and he does, and he gets on the phone, he calls 911, and then he, he, they say they got somebody coming to him. He looks out the window of the, of the front door, and he sees an HPD patrol car go by the go by the dealership, and he's thinking that's the car that they're sending to him, and it's not. It just happens to be going by. Well, he runs out of the door to see where that patrol car went, and as he runs out the door, there is a black male running up the street on the other side, and he is now crossing the street toward the dealership. Uh-oh. And they lock eyes. And Flacco tells us later that when he looked at that guy, he, he suddenly got this sense of fear. And he, he ran back into the dealership. But that, and, that guy was running towards him, toward the dealership? Yes, towards him. 
But would that have made sense if I don't know who this guy is yet, but if he's a suspect, wouldn't he be running away at that point? I'm just telling you, this is what was happening. This is what we're told. <laughs> okay. okay. I mean, okay. You, you know, we're, I'm telling you, you're hearing what we saw for the first time, what we were told, right? Got it. Got so this it. is yeah. what we're told. Now, there is a camera out on the porch as well. So we got cameras everywhere, but I don't have any video that I can look at, which is, you know, driving me nuts. So, and by this time now, the family starts to show up and it's a large family. And, and I'm, and Brian, my, my partner is working the witness side. So he is the one that is going to go out there and talk to the family. And of course it's all on the news. And, you know, I mean, it was, I could, to this day, I remember I'm inside the building and I can hear wailing from outside. I mean, it was horrific. And so this witness tells us that this happens. And he had passed on this information uh, to my partner who had then passed it on to the patrol officers that were out there. And they put out a, a bolo for this description, this person. And he was very, there was a distinction about his, he had glasses on. He was, uh, or no, I'm sorry. He did not have glasses on. He had a baseball cap on. He had some sort of athletic jacket on of some kind. And, um, but he described him and patrol found a similarly described person down Lily York, black male, young black male, baseball cap, wearing a, like a windbreaker type jacket, jeans and so forth. And my partner at the time, when they brought this guy up, is we're going to do it, what's called a show up. We're going to have this witness now come out and look at this person. Is this the person that you saw? Well, my partner, before he did that, he saw him pull up, saw the guy get out, knew the description he'd been given by Flacco. And he, in his heart of heart, he went, that's the guy. That's the guy we got. He brings Flacco, brings the witness over and says, is that the guy? And he goes, no, absolutely not. That is not him. And we're like, wow. Wow. So that, you know, it's two steps forwards and three steps back. Right. And so that, that aspect of the investigation, now we are in a complete whodunit. Mm. And I'm continuing to process the scene. Our crime scene unit is there and we're processing that scene, taking blood samples. How many, how many, hour, how many hours in is this now, roughly? Oh, golly. You know, I, I don't even, we spent several hours there that day and then we went back. I mean, we, I, I would tell you, we, we probably spent a total of 10, 12 hours at that scene uh, wow. and going back to it and continuing and, to go back to it. We probably spent more than that. Let me ask something, which is uh, a little macabre. But do you uh, do you leave? Are the bodies? Do you have the bodies stay in there till you're done, and then they're removed, or how does that work? 
once the crime scene has been processed and well, the medical examiner, they, they show up and the bodies yeah. belong to them. And once they do their thing, because they'll go in, because I asked them to take trace evidence. Uh, you know, there's some things that they do to gather evidence. So I'm, I'm in charge of the scene. So I'm the one that's working with the crime scene unit, with the medical examiner's office. And we are trying to look at what is the most probative, recoverable evidence that we can find. But, so I, but, but for like the, the 10, 12 hours that you're in there, do the bodies stay there so you can, you know, see the actual scene with the bodies there? Or does a medical examiner take the bodies as soon as they're done doing their thing? Once, once they're done, once the medical examiner, because we clear the medical examiner to come in and, and look and do their thing. So once they come in and do their thing and the bodies have been, for lack of a better term, have been processed for evidence, then the medical examiner's office uh, bags them and then puts them in the body car and then takes them to the, to the morgue for an autopsy later. I have and, all kinds of weird questions. So when there's a homicide of this nature, any homicide, how long before the chief of police has to be informed that you guys are investing? Does he find out right away? Is, is he well, right on the, top of it? The chief's office is notified anything uh, of anything like this, uh, you know, any yeah. kind of a, this is going to be obviously a high profile thing. So, yes, the chief is, is made aware of it. In those days, though, we did our own press conferences at the scene. So whoever had the witness side would do the press, would do the sound bites at the scene. And so that was done by my partner. And then we I, I'm still in processing. And there's a lot to do here. You know, there's a lot to process here. So we've. Like does, does the chief, does he ever call you and say, hey, how's it going? Or he just lets you do your thing? Not on this particular scene. That call was not made. Uh, okay. There have been scenes where I have spoken to an assistant chief. There have been times where we've gone to the chief's office and briefed him on it. But mm -hmm. the chiefs that I worked for, they knew our homicide division was if not the top in the country, one of the top and complete confidence in what we were doing. So he was, uh, the chiefs that I worked for were very good and, and the assistant chiefs and so forth uh, were very good at just letting us do our jobs. And which we- right, so, so we're at the point where, uh, you know, you guys think you have uh, uh, a possible suspect, the witness that you have has says definitively that is not the potential suspect. So now you're uh, back to square one, as they say, right? Correct. So now we're out, my partner is out talking to the family to get a background on the family, on these folks in here. On, on Tony and Jesse and Casey. And so that's when we find out that, that uh, Casey is Tony's son, Jesse and Tony are brothers and kind of got the family. And then another brother showed up. I think his name was Brian. Um, and then we had, um, now we're being given information that these, the two brothers, Jesse and Tony had been, uh, had served some time on a federal uh, narcotics conviction. And they were apparently involved in some sort of transportation or storage of marijuana. 
and they had offered proffers, which means they had offered some information about the marijuana that they had and so forth and so on. And we, they had books in their office. They had a lot of books in there. And one of the books they had in there were uh, the transportation laws uh, for the United States, for the state of Texas on transporting material and so forth and so on. So transport laws, which we thought was weird. And one of the books was open to the transport transporting uh, cars and different part and things around the, the country and, and what had to be followed and so forth and so on. So given what we were told about this marijuana stuff, we're thinking, well, is this some sort of a hit? Did they cross somebody up when they got popped for the marijuana stuff and offered these proffers? Uh, are they still in the business? And did they double cross somebody? And this is retribution for this. So now we're off on this aspect that it may be a drug thing going on here. Because the scene appears to me to be just that. It appears to be a hit. Whoever walked in there was focused on what they were going to do. They were on a mission, and they did it. They fired six shots. I think there was only one, if I recall, that, that missed the target. And it went through a paper holder that was, I think, deflected. it. But all the other five were, were direct hits. And, and I assume you, you, you checked to see if there was a safe or anything in there, if money was taken. Yeah. Well, that was the weird thing. That's a great question because, yes, there was a safe in there. There was nothing. It wasn't open, but their wallets were gone. But then the weird thing was that there was hundreds of dollars in cash in their pockets. So we're thinking, whoever did the hit took the wallets to verify, yeah, these are the dead guys, watch the media. I mean, this, this is like a television movie. I mean, this thing was getting crazy. Yeah, this and, is interesting. And well, and then the, the Casey being shot, now I'm looking at this and I'm going, now that we know what Jesse and, and Tony were into, but they've been... There's no indication that they're into it other than we're just looking at it as a possibility. And Casey, I'm thinking, is just collateral damage. They got the two guys they wanted. They can't leave a witness. So we just got to take care of business here. So that's what they did. Now... Now we get this other aspect of this case because Joey Contreras, another one of the brothers, who is the twin to Jesse, is at the time an assistant U.S. attorney in San Antonio. And wow. he has just, and he did a lot of prosecution on cartel, drug traffickers, so forth and so on. And he had just oh finished 
a major prosecution, a successful prosecution on the Mexican mafia. Well, and he's a twin of one of the now of deceased. Jesse. He's Jesse's wow. twin, twin brother. Why do I feel like this is going to be a case of mistaken identity here? But go on, Phil. Well, so now what we're thinking is <laughs> this is a hit on Joey's family because of what he's been doing in the prosecution mm -hmm. of the Mexican mafia and all these other drug traffickers. So wow. now we got that aspect in it. And what, what happens next is now we've got a federal nexus, a possible federal nexus with this thing, if that's part of this. So you name your federal acronym, FBI, HIDA, DEA, Homeland Security. I mean, we got them all, U.S. Attorney's Office. DOJ, we've got them all coming out of the woodwork now because we've made a phone call to our contact FBI agent, who's a great guy, he's a great agent, and I, I, um, he was he was a Marine, so he was an officer of Marines as I was, so we were, you know, kindred spirits in that respect, and just a very solid investigator. Now is it is this like the movies like is there is this like the movies where you're do you get uh fearful now that the FBI is going to show up with their badges and say uh, Detective Waters and whatever your partner's name is uh we're going to take over now. Uh thank you for your help. Um is it like the movies that way were you afraid that the feds were going to come in? This is not die hard. Okay. Gentlemen, I give you the FBI. No. <laughs> and and we had a very good working relationship with guys in the, in the FBI, and and we and we every kidnapping we had, we his name is Glenn Gregory, just a fine fine guy, and a fine agent, and he he's retired now as well, but he uh, uh, he worked with us on all of our kidnapping cases, all of our kidnapping cases. Glenn came over if we had anything that we could get from the feds and use them as a resource, he was there. I mean, just like that. It was, it was, uh, as Scott's even alluded to it, that they're always willing to work with their partners and local law enforcement, and they are. And so it was, it was just, we had, and we had to bring them in now because of this possible federal connection here. So Joey immediately gets agents sent to his home in San Antonio for security purposes, because we don't know what we've got here. Now we've got DEA HIDA on HIDA, high intensity drug trafficking area, and Houston, Texas is one of those. And we have HPD narcotics people assigned to HIDA. So they're out now with their dogs. So now we want to sweep this entire dealership, and it's, it's huge, it's big, uh, for any sign that there is any kind of narcotics in this area, specific, specific to marijuana. The dogs come out, we run the dogs, nothing, nothing. The only thing the dogs hit on, we've opened up the safe now and we've seen some titles and there's some cash in there. 
And the only thing the dogs hit on are the cash, which, you know, the way money flows around, I mean, there's no telling what dope dealer handles that. How do, you get, how do you get in a safe? Is a guy from the FBI come and picks and knows how to pick a safe? How do you get in? No, 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 no. We've got Flacco, who's there, who's an employee. Oh, okay. And okay. So we, we know how to get into the safe. So we're got it. Okay. We get into that, and 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 we're there. So, and this is all going on. I mean, this is all going on all at once. Um, we take the witness since we've since we've busted out this show up. This this is no good. This is not our guy. We have him transported to the robbery division where our sketch artist, Lois Gibson, who is world famous mm. Googler. She is, she's a, she's quite a character, but I tell you what, she's amazing. Shout out to Lois Gibson. Yes, indeed. And you got to get she, her on. The, I want to get her on the show, Phil. You're going to have to get I'll me on. Her. I'll, get a, I'll get a hold of her. All I'll right. Get a hold All of her. right. Yeah, she's, she's awesome. Okay. Uh, and she's a, she she would be perfect for this for this show, um, <laughs> but we send we send Flacco down to her, and she puts together a sketch, a composite of this person that he saw running across the street toward him, who he locked eyes with, and said he would never forget. Mm-hmm. So she puts together the sketch the composite, baseball cap. I mean, she puts everything on there. It was, it was awesome. So now we've got a, we've got a, an idea of what this person may look like. And we're thinking to ourselves, um, you know, a, a black male, I mean, is it, is it possible that, you know, they, they, if this is a hit, if this is a cartel thing, or some, instead of sending someone up from their area that maybe they've hired some associate up here that's a gang member, you know, to come in here and do this thing and take care of business for them and so forth and so on. And so, so there are so many components that we're trying to put together, theories, we're trying to figure out, you know, put these pieces of this puzzle in the right place. And we're having a hard time. You know, I've talked about it. it's a big puzzle, big jigsaw puzzle. What's the first thing you got to do is turn over all the pieces. We're having a hard time turning over all the pieces, let alone starting to build the frame. So it's, it is really, it, it is really a challenge from the very beginning. So and how many that. days in are you? How many days in are you right it's now? The first day. Oh my God! You find out all this, this information. Okay, okay. This is this is the first day. <laughs> okay. This is the first day. So we we're rocking and roll. You know, I mean, we're so the bodies are. You know, we now we got the bodies out. Now we're just we're going through. We're, I mean, they've come in the crime scene units. We've done the DNA swabbing. We've done we processed this scene. In every way, shape, and form, we've recovered the the uh, firearms evidence, which we're going to run through the uh, the IBIS process to see if we get a what's called a nib and hit. 
which to see if this if this weapon was used in any other crime that's been put into the system. And of course, we don't get anything there. And but we do have our video. We do have our DVR at the forensic uh, lab, video lab. Well, in the meantime, we call it a night. I mean, we're there. We we get there. I I, I don't remember specifically when. I want to say two o'clock in the afternoon, maybe. And we are we don't leave until I want to tell you almost midnight. And um, and you know it's kind of one of those things where when you get to that point, and and we're we're you know I, I always drew from every one. I never considered myself to be the duty expert, the know-it-all. I always tried to learn something new, and I always talked to other detectives, other people on the scene, other officers to get their perspective because it, many times it was different than mine. And I can tell you some of those stuff that the patrol officer shared with me, those guys made me look good. I mean, it was it, they, were, they were amazing. And this was one of these cases because – this area of town was the was North Shepherd's area at the time, North Patrol, and I had worked patrol. They call it North now, but I had worked patrol at North Shepherd when I was in patrol. So I knew most of the officers that were responding, uh -huh. and so they were they were and they were great. I mean, these guys were working cops, and uh -huh. so we're putting this all together. And you know, by the time we leave, then the guys from narcotics come out. The feds start showing up. So we're drawing. We've got so many great investigative minds out there. And I'm trying to draw from all of them because ultimately the responsibility for this scene is mine and my partners. So we get there to the end of the night and we get together in a huddle and we're just, are we missing anything? Is there something else we need to do? And at that point it was, We've, we've done everything we can, we can think of. So we go home. Now, the next thing that's going to happen is Joey Contreras is going to come to the scene. And so that is what happens next. And this is in January. So I'm telling you, on the day that he shows up, now the day that this happened, great weather Clear sky, it, it was great. Sunny and all that. When Joey showed up with his wife and his and the other brother, Brian, and his wife, it uh it was bleak. It was so gray. It was it was just horrible. And uh and it was rainy and it was it just uh, it was bad. And he showed up and we met him at the dealership. He insisted on seeing the scene. And this is the, you know, AUSA, this is the U.S. attorney's part of him kicking in. This is yeah. the law enforcement side of him kicking in. And especially given the fact that Jesse was his twin. I mean, this is just the worst possible mm -hmm. scenario. And Casey is his nephew. And Tony's his brother, his other brother, just... Unbelievable. So horrible, horrible. Yeah. We, so he walks up, um, 
we approach each other and I got my partner with me and, uh, He held out his hand to shake mine. And uh, all I could think to do was just hug him. And uh, so then we talked and I just told him that, you know, how, how sad I was. I, I just, uh, you know, and I've been keeping him in my prayers and his family and, and so forth and so on for his, and um, how sad I was for his family. Because mm. I'd met the sisters now and I mean, it was just something. So we walk through the scene, we get it done. And then we start looking at, and, we, and in the meantime, we've gotten with Flacco and uh, we're, we're interviewing him some more. And then we get to a point where the forensic video people pull video out of that DVR. Wow. So we see the entire event as it unfolded in that building. Wow. And, Thank God for forensics. Oh, it was, it was, it was amazing. It was horrific to watch. So what do you, and, what do you see? Well, we see it. We see what I believe had happened. So we see this with the video out on the porch. We see this black male with a baseball cap on, and he's got some sort of athletic windbreaker warm-up top on, wearing jeans, tennis shoes, and he's wearing glasses. He's wearing these. In fact, they look kind of like yours, Joel. I mean, they're kind of the Jiminy. <laughs> They're kind of the Jiminy Glick glasses, you know? Yeah, I, I wasn't so, there that day. Well, no, no, you are. So <laughs> what, is that, what does that tell us? Number one, I'm a little surprised to see this image because we've got Flacco's description, but I don't know. It kind of struck me. I, I was thinking I was going to see something, I don't know, a little more gangish, a little more thuggish, a little more something. But so what this tells me is this guy is disguising himself. So he's mm. got this big baseball cap on thing. And he's got, I think it said New York Yankees on the front. And then he's got uh, these, these glasses and then he's got this jacket that looks like it's oversized mm. and, and he's carrying a backpack. So he walks into the he walks into the the dealership and he's standing in the foyer and he's looking through these windows into the office and he's on his phone he's on his cell phone so I'm thinking all right you know in homicide we'll call that a clue mm. so now what's going through my head is we're going to have to see if we can figure out what cell phone tower that's popping off of. Then we're mm. going to get the feds involved again. And we're going to do 
a tower dump if we can get that that tower identified. Hold on, so one step. So you, you figure out which tower, but then I mean, how many? There's got to be a trillion people calling off of that tower in just an hour, even. So you have to go through. Exactly you find right. the, so you find the specific time of day where he's on that phone. That's what we're going to hope for. That's what I'm thinking when I'm watching this video. Okay. My and, and hard. Hard. I'm, I'm trying to get a direction on investigative direction by watching this video. So when I see him on the phone, that's the first thing I think of. We got to see if we can. And, and how's the resolution on the video? Do you have What's a good that? picture of his face? Do you have a good picture of his face? Is it good resolution? It is good enough that it resembles the composite. From Lois Gibson. From Lois Gibson. Hmm. That Flacco provided. So yeah, it it is. But the the, the and then then he, he's on the phone. He's got this backpack. He sits the backpack on a little bench. He gets off the phone. He looks in the window. He sees uh, Casey's over here at this end. Jesse's at the desk in the middle. Tony's at the other end. Jesse even gets up and walks to the bulletin board at the other end by Casey's desk and comes back and sits down while this guy's in the foyer talking on the phone. So they're not going to go out and approach him. They just figure he'll come in the office when he's through talking on the phone. Mm. He puts the phone in the bag and he's looking in the in the window from the, from the foyer area. And then he pulls a pistol and immediately goes into action. He goes through that door. He pops Casey one time in the head, then turns to Jesse, fires two rounds there, then turns on Tony and fires three more rounds at Tony. And the video cameras inside the office pick up exactly what I thought he was doing, which was moving and shooting. So wow. I'm looking at the clock on the uh, on the uh, on the video, and he does what I thought he had done: fires six rounds, five of them are headshots, and three people in less than two seconds. Wow. I mean, so what does that tell you about his uh, marksmanship and being a shooter? He's, this guy knows what he's doing. Well, it, it's kind of an indicator that this guy goes to the range. This guy is somebody that's that's knows how to fire a weapon. Right. Now, the other side of that is that He's moving and shooting, and he's just, he's so close to these people, it would be hard to miss. I mean, it would really be hard to miss. Because when he shoots Casey, I, I mean, he's he's probably – I don't recall if there was stippling on Casey, but I, I will tell you that, I mean, he's two feet when he shoots Jesse, and he's moving. So he's right up on these folks. And, of course, when he fires that first shot – Jesse and Tony, they're they're frozen. They don't even know what's and it looks like Jesse was starting to get up. Mm. And then he pops him twice. So he's moving, he's moving quickly and he's close enough that even an amateur 
the probability that they could make that shot is those shots are is pretty good. But the 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 way he's moving, I'm just thinking this is somebody that probably got some firearms training of some kind. How many times do you watch? How many times do you watch this video? I'm, I'm curious. Oh, I I couldn't tell you how many times I watched it. You just watch, go back, watch it again, go back, watch. You just keep over watching it. Again. So hmm. to see if there's anything we're missing about what he's doing. So the camera in the middle of the office um, picks up him moving across in front of Jesse's desk. And as he's moving across in front of Jesse's desk, I don't remember if he was, he slipped. He kind of slipped and he catches himself on one of the chairs. And, DNA. and then exactly. So then when he's coming back, I, I don't remember if he, if he actually grabbed one of the chairs when he slipped, but he, he's either going forward or he's coming back and he grabs one of those chairs right in front of Jesse's desk. So that's the first thing. So now what do we got to do? We got to go back to the scene. Now, this is like two days later. So and we have not, st we still haven't released the scene for cleanup. So we go back to the scene and we find that chair and we DNA swab that chair. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then I think there were some other things that we noticed that he did. And then, well, there was a part of the floor where his hand hit the floor. So we're swabbing that as best we can. Knowing that there have mm. been people walking around on it, but you know, I'd rather take it and not need it than not take it and need to have it. You know, one of, one of those things. So, yeah. So we're watching, watching, watching. Now the only thing, and, and the, the, the video is, it's wonderful to have the video, but and then we see him exit. Well, then he then he finishes that. Then he goes over to he comes back out to the backpack, puts the gun in it, and pulls out a can of gasoline, a gasoline <laughs> container. It goes in where Casey's desk is. Now Casey is still alive. Wow. And Casey is moving around in his chair like this. <laughs> And this guy is not missing a beat. He's got the gasoline. He's got a piece of paper. And he starts pouring the gasoline on Casey, on the desk, on Jesse's desk, on the floor, on Jesse, on Tony's desk, on Tony. He starts pouring his gasoline. Then he comes back. He lights this piece of paper and he's there's a puddle of gasoline on the desktop and he thinks he's going to light this gasoline with this piece of paper that's on fire, which ain't the way you do it. And in the meantime, as he's doing that, Flacco, you can see in the video, pulls in to the dealership and is heading down toward the side of the building. So he's about ready to walk in. At that point in time, this guy gives up the burning part of it. Now, he hadn't seen Flocker. So he goes out. He leaves. And he runs down the street. He's headed uh, westbound on Little York toward airline. So I see this. 
And then we then we have we let the video run because then we got Flacco coming in, and what I described to you is what we see him doing. We see him run out the door. We see now our suspect, our possible suspect, is coming back on the other side of the street, running across the street, and running right toward Flacco, who's standing on the porch on his phone with 911. And Flacco's like, wow, you can see it in the body language, just Flacco's response. When he sees this guy, he knows something is not right about this guy, and he turns and runs back in. When that guy sees him, he turns and runs away from whence he came. Now, one of the other things, when he left the building, he was wearing he was wearing black trousers. When he left the building, he, and he pulled some shoes out of this bag to get to the gas can. Well, these shoes looked like they were just black, you know, like loafers or, you know, tie shoes that, that, and then he had the black pants on and it looked like he had a, like a uniform kind of thing, like a waiter or a valet or something. So he's going out. Well, he drops one of those shoes out on the driveway, picks it up and heads out. And now when he's coming back, so the other thing I noted was that when he's coming back, when Flacco sees him, he no longer has the glasses. So he's gotten rid of the glasses because Flacco gives us the composite with no glasses. So now Lois goes back and redraws the composite and puts glasses on. So now we've got the guy in the building as he looked at the time. Now, the only bad part about this whole thing is, is that the video doesn't tell us who he is. Mm. So that's, that's the conundrum now. Is getting this guy identified. So what ha- what happens with the fingerprints? The DNA was a DNA swabbing. Well, that stuff all has to be sent out to labs. I mean, we're talking about that processing got to take place. So this doesn't happen on television, you know. So it's awesome. how long? How long does it take to get fingerprints back like that? How long do you have to wait? Well, fingerprints are pretty quick, but we didn't I, we didn't get anything back fingerprint wise. And DNA stuff can take, when I left, it could take up to six to eight months. Oh, my God. Now, we okay. can put a priority on it, which we did, and we can get that stuff back much, much quicker. But the long and short of it was none of the DNA helped us out at all. Mm. So where do you go and from we, here? Well, so now we're now when I see what we see on the video, now I go... And I, I go down that street, Lilliort, in the direction that he ran. And there are strip centers. There's a grocery store. There's a big grocery store down there. All sorts of businesses. And I start combing that entire area for video. So I find video cameras, I don't know, in Little Caesars. I found it in a grocery supply place. I found it in a grocery store. On the other side of the street, I found it at a pawn shop. I was able to track this guy with the videos right up to the point where we lose him at around a 
at a bus stop area, which becomes very important later on. But I don't see where he goes. So I go in there we, and we get all of those videos. So we get all those videos. So we, we get the guy and he had to, we, we figured he had to park his car down at the grocery store because that's where he's coming up that side of the street, which is where the car dealership is. So I've got him at the grocery store walking up, walking through the alley. I mean, we've got him from the time he starts walking from the grocery store up to the car dealership and then back around and down on the other side of the street. We just don't know where we, where his car is parked and we don't know where he got to it, you know, and, and left the area. So we got all this great video stuff. And what I did was, so then my partner had to go out of town for a couple of weeks. So it's kind of like, I, it's just me. And I've now gotten in touch with our guy at, at the FBI. And because of this federal nexus, the FBI is going to bring their forensic people in on the phone stuff. And we do just that. We get a search warrant. If we find out what tower, we find out the tower that it's on, the, the side of the tower that it's on. We've got a time frame and a date and a location. So we do a dump on that cell tower. And as you can imagine, hundreds of thousands of calls just in that little time frame. And the FBI, the special agent, he's, he dives feet first into it. And I mean, he is, uh, he was awesome. I mean, he was going, but this is going to take time. It's going That's to take a need time. on a haystack. I mean, how do you even, but what are you, what are you looking for there? You're looking for a number that you can trace to someone, but how do you know which number? Like, well, we, cause we're going to narrow it down. We know the time frame in which that calls made. We know that he made it from this point in time to that point in time. So we've got like a, I forget how far, how long he was on the phone, maybe, maybe 10 minutes or so, whatever. But so he's, so we know, so we, but this is the FBI guy's job is to narrow that down and get us down to a number. And at this point, so we've done all this where I've even gone to gas stations down the road in the area to see if I can catch that guy putting gasoline in that container that he had at the scene. So I've gone and been looking at video. I don't know how much time I spent looking at video at, I don't know how many locations, but it was, it was days. I mean, we were, did, it was, let me ask you, this is another dumb Joel question. I'm, Cause you see stuff in the movies, but so when you have to go to these, you know, like little Caesars or a gas station, you just walk in there. You, you show them your badge. You say, hi, I'm detective Phil waters of the Houston PD. I need to look at your video. And do they have to drop everything they're doing right then and there and show you the video or do they, do they shit their pants when they see you or uh, what happens? Well, they all did because they're all aware of the, of the triple. And, and, and by the way, so the next day, Casey passes. Hmm. So the next day, he and now it's turned into a triple homicide. Jesus. And, uh, and Casey donated his, uh, you know, his organs. I mean, it was very poignant, that part of it. But uh, mm -hmm. so they're all aware. 
Mm-hmm. And they're more than happy to help. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, yeah, I just walked in. I'm, you know, got my, my homicide outfit on, my badge, my pistol, and mm. What's your how you doing? I'm Phil Waters. I'm a homicide detective. I'm here to help. So here we go. And uh, got a lot of video, and then we turned that over. We had those off, those enhanced as best we could. Um, but again, we, we, we don't know who this person is. So all this is going on now, and now we're, we're rocking and rolling. Now we're at the, this happened January the 8th. Now we're, now we're into the end of the month. And I'm giving Joey updates about what we're finding, what we're not finding, where we're going for it. And then I would tell you, uh, we're still waiting on the FBI stuff to come back. And, and, and Joey's got to be terrified because he still thinks this could be, and I don't know what it is, but it's still, it could be a Mexican hit, like a cartel hit. So, well, sure, him, you know. At, at this point, the other thing that we do is, given what we're seeing as a possible suspect, now our question is, did the brothers have a falling out with someone they sold a car to? So that's where, because we wanted to explore every possibility. So that's the next step. So I get Flacco in there and we start pulling out. I said, you know, think about any, any interaction that you are aware of that they may have had, the brothers may have had with somebody who bought a car, they repossessed a car from them, you know, whatever. And not only did Flacco come up with some people, but Anthony, Tony's son, came up with some people. The sisters came up. So there we had, I want to tell you, four or five possible suspects who had had problems with the dealership and had made either direct threats or implied threats to the brothers. So that gets us off on another trail. So now what do we have to do? we got to do the background on those people. We got to find out where those cars went, find out who's got them now, find out what the circumstances were. They put trackers on their cars, so we were able to locate many of those cars. And through that process, which took weeks, we ended up eliminating all of those people as possible suspects. So now again we're back to ground zero so what we have done is the the cartel drug connection thing we don't find any evidence that that's a possibility here we don't find any evidence that that's where this that's that that is why this happened so that's how but how frustrating so eliminating people is good but how frustrating is it for you this far in you know four or five weeks and now you're basically right back to almost square one well eliminating the the uh, eliminating a suspect is as important as finding the right one so we don't want to be distracted if we can eliminate someone we've got to get them pull them off the pull them off the board or we're done and get us down to where we need to be. So this is all, again, it's, it's trying to find the right person who's done this wrong thing. Mm. And so where do you go from here? So now you're, well, you eliminated all this work. 
And we are at this point now where we're, we are into February now and we're still waiting on FBI, you know, cell tower stuff. Um, we've hit the wall. We are at a complete dead end. We're not getting any firearm stuff back. The DNA stuff doesn't do us any good. You know, there, there's, there's nothing, there's no active lead. We've done everything we can possibly do. We're waiting on the cell phone stuff. So, and I, you know, and I hate, you know, I'm calling Joey and I'm telling him, I'm talking to him at this point on a weekly basis. I mean, you know, and, and I'm talking to Anthony and Anthony's helping us out with, with getting potential suspects through the car dealership. So we've got the whole family. I mean, everybody is vested in this investigation. And, and like I said, I, I don't, I don't solve these things on my own. Uh, the, this was uh, an amazing how all these folks from every aspect of this investigation pulled together to, to get, uh, get us focused on, on who this, and, and at the time I referred to him, I referred to people like this as evildoers. I referred to him as an evildoer at the time. Didn't even know who he was referring to him as an evildoer. So I, we, I tell, I tell Joey, we've hit the wall. The best I can tell him is we're waiting for the cell phone done. And I hated it. I mean, I don't, I don't hate people or things as a rule, but that I hated. I just hated having to tell him that. And and he and I had become close at that point. And I did make a promise to him though. And I, I can tell you that I have, I don't make promises to folks in capturing people and so forth and so on. But on this case, I told Joey, I said, I'm telling you that we're going to catch this guy. We're going to catch him. And when we do, you're going to be the first person that I call. So I made him that promise that day. That's awesome. And um, so now we're, we're done. We're waiting on the FBI. Well, and they're giving me updates. I mean, Glenn is, you know, the FBI agent. He's coming by. Uh, he's bringing the, the FBI special agent that's actually doing the research and the analysis. And he's showing me. I mean, and it's crazy. He'll show me up. He goes, okay, I've narrowed it down to 50,000 phone calls. I mean, okay. And he's saying it like, it's a good that's thing. a big deal, you know? And I'm just <laughs> looking at him going, well, I'm glad you know what, because I, you know, 
And yeah. um, and now we are, and this is this is a true story. Now we are into May of 2015. Starts in January. We're in May. Okay. So we are five months into this investigation. Got a lot of great stuff. We're no closer to identifying anybody than we were the day that it happened. Wow. So on a Friday, Glenn Gregory and the special agent with the phone stuff are in my office. It's at the end of the day. We work from seven to three. They were over, they, they came over like, you know, around two o'clock and they're giving me the update. Well, now, if I recall right, he's telling me I'm down to 10,000 calls. And I'm like, okay, that still sounds like a lot, but we've gone from 100,000 to 10,000. I guess that's progress, right? You're eliminating it, yeah. And so we have that discussion. We're talking about it. And I made the comment, and I had, I had made the comment to uh, to Glenn that, you know what, I'm just I'm just praying for some divine intervention here. We need we need something. And we finish our conversation, and they leave. It's a true story. I swear. Fifteen minutes after they leave, I get a phone call from our intake desk. And they tell me that there is a young woman on the phone who wants to talk to me about the triple homicide at Immaculate Auto Sales. Interesting and ironic that it's Immaculate Auto Sales. You want a divine intervention and now you get this call. This is like straight out of a movie. You cannot make this stuff up. It's a true story. The immaculate call. And so I get on the phone with this young lady. And she just tells me that her boyfriend, her baby's daddy, had admitted and confessed to her in February that he was the one who killed these three, murdered these three people at Immaculate Car Sales, Auto Sales. And, and she, she sounds totally genuine, sincere. And oh, she's God, yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh-huh. you, you could have touched me on the forehead and I would have fallen right out of my seat. It was... <laughs> I, I felt like I was levitating all of a sudden. It was, oh. it, 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 it was amazing, an amazing phone call. And, and, and so what do you do? Do you ask her to come down? Do you go straight to her? Oh, yeah. What would oh, yeah. oh, yeah. So this is somebody I need to interview. I need to get the details. I need to, I need, this is going to be a critical, critical interview. Okay. So she agrees to come down the next day, which was a Saturday and let me interview her, take a statement from her. 
And so her grandmother brings her down, which is who she's staying with. And she, we get in the interview room and we just talk. And so I want to know about her relationship with this baby daddy who she identifies as James Tinsley. So I do all the research on James Tinsley. Yeah, you never heard that name prior to this. You didn't know. Okay. No, no, no. And uh, not even going through all of the car stuff. I mean, did not hear this name at all. So this is all brand new. And so I run him and I get his driver's license photo. True story. He is the spitting image of the composite that Lois Gibson drew that Flacco gave her. That's wild. And I'm just like, I mean, there's moments in an investigation where you just pause. Mm. I mean, it's like an epiphany. I mean, this was one of the, I just went, oh my gosh, this is the guy. This is the guy. And so we, and she was so specific about details in the phone call. And then when I see this picture, I'm like, oh my gosh. So we uh, put together a photo array. We put six pictures of similarly looking people in a photo array. We call it a six pack. Mm-hmm. And we take it out to the dealership where we meet Flacco and show it to Flacco. And my partner is the one that I put the, the photo array together. My partner is the one that showed it to him. And my partner is, when we show these photo arrays, we watch their eyes. We watch to see where they're looking and what they're looking at. And so my partner tells me that, that he could see Flacco looking and then he just went, it's him. Well, he picks out James Tinsley. Wow. It's so interesting. All this is so interesting. The fact that you guys are looking at their eyes while they're looking at the six pack, that's interesting. Right. So so he so he picks the guy. Um and, he and said, by the way, did the yeah. baby mama did the baby mama tell you did did was there a motive behind this? Did she tell you oh, why he get, said? Let me, I'll, I'll get to that. Okay. okay? Yeah. So we, uh, in the interview with her, and well, then then my partner drew glasses on the figure in the photo array. And, uh, of course, he hadn't seen him with glasses on, but that was they gave us a sense of what the, uh, the composite looked like after Lois put the glasses on it. So he said, yeah, he goes, this is him 100%. I would never forget his eyes. Because the minute he looked at his eyes when he was running across the street, he said he got scared. He said there was something about that guy that he knew he needed to go back inside because he scared him. So there you go. Got that. Now then, my interview, I, so I'm, I said, well, explain to me your history with James. Well, so she's got, they were boyfriend, girlfriend in high school. They worked at the same places, some fast food restaurants, so forth and so on. Um, they end up... Uh, having a baby together, having a child together, and they move in together. 
and they purchase a car together. Well, guess where they purchased that car from? Immaculate. Auto sales. Wow. Well, they, they buy a 2000, I want to say a 2008 Mitsubishi Galant, I think is what it was. Mm-hmm. But a uh, silver and copper. And they got the car and he's going to work. They, they've got J-O-Bs. I mean, they're working. They have the little, the little, uh, the baby, a uh, little girl and um, life is good. Then the car breaks down and he puts it in a shop to get it fixed. It's going to cost 200 bucks to get it out of the shop. James doesn't have the money and the, to pay the, to pay the bill or to pay now or to make the payments. He can't get it out of the, he can't get it out of the shop. So he can't get, can't get the car. So immaculate Jesse and Tony find out that where the car is. So they go get the car they pay the bill, they bring it to the shop, and they tell him that we'll keep the car and you can come and pay the bill and we'll give you the car. Well, and I think they let him off the hook for payments and so forth. So, I and mean, they really tried to work with these folks, right? Mm-hmm. Well, he doesn't show up for a while because he just doesn't have the money. Well, the the... Tony and Jesse decide that he's not going to be able to get the car back because he hasn't. So they put the car, they clean the car up, clean it out. And it's just got trash and some dirty clothes. And I think maybe some pampers or something, but it's just got trash in there. There's really no, no big personal items in there that they can identify. And in fact, I think at one point they may have, told him or asked him if they were going to do this and so forth and so on. So they put the car back on the lot for sale. And this is her telling me what he told her. So he is going by the lot one day and he sees the Mitsubishi sitting on the lot for sale. So he goes in there and he says, why is my car out there? And they explain to him, Jesse and Tony, look, we, we just can't keep holding the car here. It's been mm-hmm. hour long. It's been several weeks. We, we've got to put it back on the lot. And he goes, where's my stuff? Well, we cleaned it out. There wasn't anything in there except some trash. And Well, that mm-hmm. just enraged him. Wow. And he left. And he told them something. She said that he made some comment to them or something like that or, and left. So that was probably, I want to tell you, in December when that mm-hmm. happened in 2014. And then between that time and January the 8th of 2015, he's putting his plan together about what he's going to do. Wow. All over a used car. Oh, yes. 
So now we've got the record. Now we know who this guy is. So now we go back in and we find all the records for that car that we had not looked at or known about before. So we get all that. By the all way, that. I hope you told the FBI guy to stop looking for cell phone numbers no, at this no, point, no, or at no, least no, gave it to him. No, 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 no. We would never <laughs> tell him to stop that. No. I mean, that's just another piece of evidence. I mean, we're not, exactly. I'm not about to tell somebody to stop that. Because so even though she's giving us, even though she's telling us this, what he is, what he's admitted to her, yeah. uh, we still got you, to have corroboration. But could you have at least asked her for his cell so he could at least just go down the list and find it quicker? Oh yeah, we've got we've got we've got his phone number and all that. But you got to remember, this is all in real time. I don't I don't yeah, have time yeah. to get the phone number and call the FBI and say, okay, this is on a Saturday. We're <laughs> rocking and rolling now. This 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 is is moving i mean we yeah. are we're on steroids now we're you know yeah yeah and uh so you're so you're so, chomping at the bit to, to pick up this james tinsley so how does that come? yeah okay well so we i get the whole story from her and she tells us that he rode a bus to the car dealership and the DA's office later finds the bus ticket that he took from North Harris County down to the dealership on the day of the murder. And then he took it back, the murders. So we, so we're now, we're now we're corroborating what she's telling us. And we, we put that all together and she also, so then the question is, why didn't you tell us back in February? Why didn't you make this call back then? And why are you making it now? Why, why are you here now? Her Number answer? one, back in February, she was scared to death. Mm -hmm. Because they had broken up. She's living with her grandmother. He had threatened to kill her if she ever got with another man. He's been posting stuff on her Facebook and Instagram, social media, when she's posted pictures of other guys that she's been seeing. He's been threatening them. He's been threatening her, threatening her grandmother. And in the meantime, they've got this baby together. She's got the baby. He wants to see, and she wants to, Keep, she's, she's not letting him see the baby because of these threats that he's making. The reason she calls us in May is because he called her and said he wanted to bring some pampers over for the baby. <laughs> Would she meet him? And she said, okay, well, I will. Well, he doesn't have a car, so he has his sister, bring him, who he's living with, bring him over there. He goes over there. He meets with her. She brings the baby and he wants to hold the baby. He hands her the pampers. She hands him the baby. And what does he do? He turns and runs to the sister's car, jumps in it and takes off with the baby. God. So there you go. Now she's made a police report about that. She's made prior police reports about uh, the threats that he's made. 
So what we do, we get, we, the long and short of it is, we get him identified and find out where he is working. And he's working at a restaurant out at the airport at Intercontinental. This is all happening the same day of this interview with her. Wow. So so he tried to abduct the baby? Did he take the baby? He didn't try to. He took her. He, he did. took the baby. So he took the baby. That's obviously another charge, right? That's Well, no, because he's the father. I mean, that, that stuff never okay. comes to anything. But so she tells us where he's working. And what we do is we go and get what's called a pocket warrant, which is an arrest warrant. No charges are filed. It's just simply a warrant signed by the DA that I can, I can arrest this person for this particular charge. And I can interview them. I can serve the warrant uh, and put them in jail. I can interview them, not serve the warrant, and cut them loose. I can put them in jail on the warrant interview them, put them in jail on the warrant and charge them. Or I can let them sit in the jail for 24 hours and not charge them and release them. So it's a great tool and we use them, use them all the time. Mm. It's not, it's not a warrant that is in the system, which are called to be warrants in Texas and Harris County. And, um, I do not have to, Mirandize him. I don't have to tell him that I've got this warrant in my hand. It's a probable cause warrant is all it is. So how does that work? Do you get a, uh, I mean, you have to get, I mean, this guy's potentially armed and dangerous. So you have to send like a SWAT team in to get this guy? Or oh, no, 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 no. No? No? He's at work. He's working, I think, at a, at a restaurant in, in the Intercontinental Airport, and he's working that day. Yeah. Which explains the black trousers and the black shoes that we see on the video. Interesting. Okay. But aren't you worried that he could be armed? No, not at his workplace. No. Okay. Okay. And he's, wearing a, and he's wearing a white shirt we can see underneath. So it, the, so the uniform is what he's doing. Got he's it. like a, a waiter or a cook or something. I think he's a cook at this restaurant at the airport. Okay. So you guys go out to the airport, this you and your partner? You go with yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. So we go out there. HPD, you know, has the uh, security for the airport. And so they've got an office out there. So I get a warrant for harassment <laughs> in the case with his girl, his baby mom. Mm. And if this is going to be a non-custodial interview, so I do not have to Mirandize him, but he is not leaving that interview room. I'm going to arrest him on that warrant. Mm. If that's what he, if that's what he does, tries to get up and leave. So, uh, we go out to the restaurant. It's it's me. It's uh, my partner. I, yeah, our our FBI guy is there, and uh, the um, we get with HPD out there, and uh, we just we go to the restaurant. We find him and talk to his manager and ask him. Tell him I need to talk to him about an issue involving his baby mama. He says, oh, okay. So he uh, goes down to the office. We get in an interview room. I video it, and we start the the interview. So I do what I normally do. I just get to know the guy, introduce myself. We start to talk, and we start to – I start to put the puzzle together about the car. 
I want to know the history of the car. I want to know his history with her. So he starts doing this stuff. So he starts making these admissions about the car. The car broke down. I couldn't pay for it. They went and they repossessed it. Mm -hmm. He talks about the people that he dealt with at, at the dealership. Uh, and he talks about a young guy that was there that he, that he always had, always got along with. That's going to be Casey. Mm. That the only two people that he really dealt with were the other two older guys. That's going to be Jesse and Tony. Wow. So he's making these admissions mm. and it is putting pieces in place and in their, pers and in their proper perspective. Mm. So that interview continues on, continues on. And then I start to get more focused on the actual murders. And then he's, he's not stupid. So he picks up on where we're headed. And now his whole demeanor changes. I mean, uh, it, it is, it is unbelievable to watch this guy's change change. So the long story short on the interview is he never confesses. He makes a lot of these admissions that corroborate the story that the girlfriend has told us. And he gets up. He says, well, I'm done here. I'm going back to work. And he stands up. And I said, uh, no, you're not. Sit down. Mm. And he goes, what? He goes, I'm not, you know, I said, sit down. You're under arrest. <laughs> under arrest for what? And, and at one point in that, and when it got heated in there, he said, he said, I thought we were here to talk about what went on between me and, you know, my girlfriend or something like that. I said, well, we are, but now we're talking about this. So, mm. so I, he, have uh, a, I have a rap sheet, by the way. You know, I don't recall if he had one. It was petty stuff. I mean, I think he may have had a, he may have had like a marijuana charge or, or a, a theft or something. But, you know, he had, a, I mean, Certainly nothing that would indicate he was do something like this. Yeah. Wow. But, That's a huge leap from uh, petty theft to doing this. And do you tell him in the interview that, um, cause you want to, I guess you want to protect the baby mama, but do you have to tell him that you spoke to the baby mama? She well, said, he, yeah, he knew, I mean, he knew where this was coming from. Okay. He, he knew it was coming from. Okay. And so we end up, um, uh, that he stands up, he's going to, I said, sit down, you're under arrest for her. And he goes, for what? I said, for harassment mm. on the girlfriend. Then he goes, what did I do to her? I mean, it was just, it was hysterical. I mean, deflecting. I mean, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. And then at that point, my partner, which he shouldn't have done, but he comes busting in the room. And uh, of course the guy looks at him. I'm looking at him like, what are you doing here? But anyway, so we went on and on. So we, we end up going to his apartment where he is staying. And if I'm not mistaken, I think he signed a consent to search. And it was his sister's apartment. We, either a consent or we got a search warrant, one or the other. But I think he may have given a consent of where he was living. And we get there. And, of course, his sister's there. The baby is there. The baby is okay. And we gathered up some pretty – there was a gas can there. I mean, it, it, so we gathered up some evidence that further corroborates his being the right suspect. Then we end up, um, we called her and the grandmother brought her up because she's living in Southeast Houston. He's up in North Harris County. They come up there. She picks the baby up and they leave. 
And he's sitting out in the patrol car this whole time watching all of this unfold. His sister is a nut. She's calling the Harris County Sheriff's Office on us. So we've got two homicide detectives and an FBI agent, all with our badges on and our guns on, and we've identified ourselves to her. She's calling the Harris County Sheriff's Office to get a patrol unit out there because she's got some people in her apartment that are trespassing. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I mean, a lot of a lot of funny yeah. stuff along this thing. So uh, uh, not, you know, I get on the phone with the dispatcher and blah 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 blah. I said, "Yeah, we're the culprits." You know, blah blah blah. <laughs> so anyway, and they sent a patrol unit out there. And we talked to the patrol unit. <laughs> so it was pretty funny. But uh, so we get him, uh, we put him in jail, and we. Uh, end up uh, charging him with capital murder, which I told him that that's going to happen. So that day, I made good on my promise, and I called Joey Contreras and told him that we had apprehended the, the evildoer that had murdered his brothers and his nephew. So it was pretty powerful stuff is all I can tell you. And, um, wow. Full circle. And you, uh, you lived up to the promise. Well, that, and, and so at the, the, and then he was tried, it should have been a death penalty case. It was a death penalty case all day long. Fortunately, we've got a weak DA, uh, in Harris County then and now. And they tried him as a non-death capital, but he was convicted. He's doing life with no parole. The entire family was, uh, the Contreras family was in that, in that courtroom. It was an amazing time. She testified. It was, uh, that was one of the most powerful testimony. Of course, the video of the, the, uh, of the interview was there. Uh, everything that we had done this, uh, the thing that really kind of put the nail in the coffin was this bus fare that we found, uh, of him coming from North Harris County to the little York area, uh, to the dealership and then back on the day of, in the time frame in which it occurred. So these, all these affirmative links, uh, brought about, uh, a successful prosecution and the family. And again, I, I became, uh, close with the family. Uh, they kind of welcomed me into theirs. And uh, so that was the, the most poignant part of this. And they gave me a, oh, it's this, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a clear plastic block. And they engraved on the block the images of Tony and Jesse and Casey. And uh, <clears throat> and engraved on it, uh, from darkness light, from light truth, from truth justice, with deep gratitude, from the Contreras family. So uh, I still have that uh, prominently displayed in my office at home. And... Uh, so yeah, that was the, uh, after all that had happened, uh, those, the Contreras family uh, brought me into their own. And it was, uh, 
that would I, it's, that's all of these things that occurred. It just it was. Um, this may sound a little weird, but it was an amazing investigation. And there is no doubt in my mind that it was brought about, this conclusion was brought about by an act of uh, divine intervention. And I'll just finish this with saying, in terms of witnesses, there's no better witness than a woman scorned. An amazing story an amazing ending and an amazing homicide detective. One of the best in all of America, now retired. This was Phil Waters, Detective Phil Waters, 23 years working homicide for the Houston PD, uh, worked about 10 more years in law enforcement. He was also Marine, the owner of Kindred Spirits Investigation and starred in the show, The Interrogator. And we all thank the man above for letting Phil become a detective and not an executive vice president and a home construction company. Cause, uh, this was his calling and, uh, story gave me goosebumps and, uh, what the Contreras family gave you, Phil is worth more than any, uh, metal or any money. So, uh, keep that in your office proudly. Thanks for sharing. Love you, America. Love you, Houston. Aloha. Final seconds of the game, a chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.